You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. International Monetary Fund Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva joins Washington Post Live to discuss the financial challenges ahead and how the IMF is working to reignite the global economy. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today on our continuing series, The Path Forward, we'll be focusing on the global economy with IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Georgieva. Uh, welcome back, Kristalina. Uh, it's great to have you here with us again to talk about global financial issues. Well, thank you very much. It is a pleasure and an honor to be with you, David. So let's jump right in with your new proposal uh, last week for a significant uh, increase in efforts at global vaccination. You have proposed with your IMF colleagues that by the end of this year, in a very aggressive new program, 40% of the world's population would be vaccinated, and that by the end of 2022, at least 60% of the world's population would be vaccinated. That's obviously an an ambitious goal. Tell us uh, first the details of how that would be done, what it would cost, and who would pay the bill for it. It is very clear that um, uh, we are faced with a dangerous divergence of economic fortunes. A group of advanced economies and some emerging markets are chartering a strong recovery and the rest of the world is falling behind. Uh, What drives the recovery? Policy actions and advancements uh, in vaccinations and more broadly, protecting people against the pandemic. When this is lagging, the uh, pressure on people and the economy is uh, very severe and the risk for the global recovery is very significant. So if we want to come on the other side of the pandemic faster for the benefits of everyone, we do need to concentrate on accelerating vaccinations everywhere. We looked at it very thoroughly and our conclusion is it is possible and time is not our friend it is possible to set the target of vaccinating 40% of the population everywhere by the end of this year. We actually are more ambitious, David. We want to see 60% by mid-22. It is possible on the basis of production capacity. And uh, the question is, what would it take to get there? First, it will take money up front. We put a price tag on our proposal of $50 billion. We believe $35 billion should be funded by grants because we are talking primarily of uh, low-income countries needing help, 15 by concessional finance or, or domestic resources. When we look at how this money should be invested, because this is an investment, we see three priorities. One, upfront financing of COVAX. This is where the world is counting on getting uh, vaccine supplies 
for poor countries, upfront commitment of vaccines that advanced economies will not use. We assess this to be about 1 billion doses or 500 million courses of vaccines just for this year. And eliminating the trade barriers for vaccines and materials to flow so we can increase the efficiency of production and distribution. Secondly, it would take us being mindful of downside risks. If there are more variants, as India has demonstrated, uh, is a danger for everyone, we might need booster shots. So we should overshoot by at least 1 billion doses and upfront fund expansion of production for that purpose. We also have to be more determined in surveying the appearance of new variants and the capacity to deal with it across the globe. Last but not least, in between, before we get vaccination stepped up, make sure that developing countries get help to prepare to receive vaccines. We have seen in, in a number of countries vaccines being wasted because the country is not ready to use those vaccines and make sure that the rest of the measures we know work, like a testing, contact a tracing, that they are funded. So as economists, we look at it from cost-benefit uh, balance. And uh, it is so very obvious that 50 billion may be a lot of money, but dwarfed by the benefit for the world economy. We assess the benefit for the world between now and 2025 of accelerating vaccinations to be $9 trillion. And most importantly, this benefit is spread 60-40 between developing countries and advanced economies. In other words, rich countries benefit tremendously just tax revenues that wealthy countries will collect because we are accelerating the recovery of the world economy would be in these five years one trillion dollars so david you can imagine a group of uh, economists scratching our heads on how come we are not more aggressively pursuing this investment that in our view is the best public investment with the highest return we are going to see in our lifetimes. And we are so. massively concerned that speed has not been sufficiently uh, high so far. So those, those are impressive uh, numbers in terms of, of, of benefits, $9 trillion uh, over the course of the next few years would obviously be enormously beneficial. Let me ask you to return to the question of costs. If, if I understood mm -hmm. you, you were saying that if if the developed world doesn't do this and the, the less developed world remains in effect a laboratory for creation of new mutant strains of, of COVID or follow-on uh, diseases, that those will bounce back into the developed world uh, in a way that could have shattering new 
consequences for public health. Am I understanding that right? Uh, there are two risks uh, for the global recovery coming from that divergence I spoke about. The first one is exactly the one you just spelled out, that we will retain a breeding ground for new variants of the virus uh, that are likely to slow down recovery, not only in the countries affected, but also globally. There is, however, a second risk. If we are in a world in which one part recovers very rapidly and grows uh, uh, in a very impressive, uh, as we were projecting for the world, 6% rate for this year, and another part falls behind, this other part may be faced with the danger of interest rates increasing while the economies of these countries are still not growing to compensate uh, for that increase. And if they are under the burden of especially dollar-denominated debt, both public and corporate debt, they may find themselves really strangled. And that is not only danger for them, it is a danger for global supply chains, it is a danger for investor confidence. In other words, it can have a ricochet impact on the advanced economies. So we believe that uh, uh, closing our eyes to this divergence can harm not only the countries falling behind and their people, which is bad enough, but it can harm the global recovery and it can uh, harm investor, investor sentiment uh, in a way that uh, uh, we see to be uh, significant and requiring very close attention. Let me ask you, Kristalina, to focus on the um, high end growth scenario for, for the United States and other developed countries. The forecasts are for extraordinary levels of, of growth, 6.5% 6, 6 uh, this year, something we haven't seen in, in many, many, many years. But people have begun to warn, and Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, warns very explicitly in this morning's Washington Post uh, op-ed page that he believes that inflationary pressure is now a, a significant problem in the United States. Your IMF economists are as, as good as any in the world. I'm curious what their their assessment is of the inflationary danger in the U.S., uh, in Europe, in these countries that are experiencing fast growth. And then I want to talk after that about the interest rate consequences. But, but talk first about inflation and what you and your colleagues see. Well, let me first say that uh, uh, high growth rates in the United States uh, is a global public good. It has a positive spillover, especially to economies that are more integrated with this of the United States. Uh, it is uh, uh, creating a um, possibility of prices to go up. And let me explain the uh, factors that are driving prices up and why at the IMF, we are in the camp of those who think these are transitory uh, factors. The first one is a boost of demand. Uh, we have the stimulus working in that direction. Uh, we have the uh, vaccinations uh, creating a much better environment for people to go out and spend. Uh, and that rapid jump in demand uh, 
puts pressure on prices. And then we have supply chain uh, interruptions. Uh, they are very real. Uh, they are holding the supply back. Uh, and let me remind uh, the audience again, they may be sustained for much longer unless the rest of the world is growing in sync with the United States. These two factors, we believe, are going to be there for some time, but they would eventually uh, be overtaken by supply being boosted and uh, the interruptions in supply chains being uh, um, uh, corrected. And um, when we look at the longer term assessment of where inflation is uh, uh, likely be, uh, to be in the United States, at this point, we do not see a major reason to be concerned. This being said, of course, we are watchful. Uh, and uh, we are very uh, grateful to Chair Powell for his clarity of communication and for his commitment to communicate well in advance based on data what is likely to be the policy of the Fed. Uh, and let me finish with the following. We have full confidence that the Fed has the tools to address inflationary pressures should they be a longer lasting phenomenon where we are concentrating our attention is more on the spillover impact for the rest of the world. Uh, David, you said we are going to get into interest rates. Uh, uh, yes, we yes. have to because because if we are in a situation in which rapid growth in the United States leads to the need for some earlier correction of interest rates, in other words, an upward trajectory, while the emerging world or a big chunk of it is still deep into crisis, this can create pressure on countries and corporates to service their debt, especially dollar-denominated debt. And should that be combined with a stronger dollar, it can be a source of trouble. In other words, good news in the United States in advanced economies can turn into bad news for parts of the developing world. And we have to be watchful and ready with policy action should that be the case. So just to, to make clear on the interest rate situation, there already is some upward pressure on interest mm -hmm. rates in the United States. Um, when your forecasters look at all the demand and other factors, uh, in, in financial markets. Do they see that interest rate rise continuing? And can you give us any any estimates from, from their latest forecasts of where they think interest rates are going through the rest of this year, let's say? Uh, for this year, uh, we don't see a, a significant uh, move in interest rates. Actually, we are, we are uh, confident uh, that uh, 
the uh, measures that are uh, taken to uh, stimulate the US economy on balance are translating into good news for uh, other countries because of the spillover impact of demand from the US economy. Where we are more concerned is when we look into 22, 23 and down, uh, we, would it be a situation in which that danger of countries not stepping up fast enough translates into risks for even relatively small increase in interest rates combined with possibly a stronger dollar creating problems for corporates and for uh, sovereigns uh, where the level of debt was high before this crisis and it has gotten inevitably even higher as a result of responding to the pandemic. We are uh, very interested in making sure that today, not when this materializes, that today countries are looking into action on the insolvency front. Is the insolvency regime strong enough? Should there be uh, any need for uh, corporate restructuring? Uh, are we in good shape to do it? And more broadly, managing that proactively now when the conditions uh, are um, very clearly favorable uh, to do so. I want to come back to debt in a moment, Kristalina, uh, but we just had, since we began our conversation, an announcement from the White House that I want to ask you about. The White House has just announced that in June, President Biden will be meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Europe for their first face-to-face uh, -face summit. There's an extensive agenda. Uh, and, and I wanted to ask you whether you think that's a positive sign in terms of uh, prospects for global economic cooperation for the portfolio of issues that you focus on most closely. It is positive to have more cooperation globally. We are not yet out of the woods with this crisis. And in front of us, there are very significant global challenges we have to wrestle with, climate change being on top of the list. We are encouraged by this spirit of resolving long-standing issues, for example, a minimal corporate tax or taxing the di digital industry in a fairer way. Uh, and certainly having more discussions around the challenges the world faces, uh, finding common ground to address uh, these challenges uh, from the perspective of the world economy is beneficial. Before we leave the, the subject of the global pandemic and your ambitious proposal for radically expanded vaccination, uh, of the rest of the world. I, I want to ask you, Kristalina, as you look back over this past year plus of uh, terrible difficulty, what, what are the lessons that you take for the next pandemic? Because we all know 
that as bad as COVID-19 has been, there are going to be more global health crises like this. What have you learned about what to do, what worked, and what not to do? The most important uh, lessons from the pandemic uh, are, one, in good times, invest in strong fundamentals. Countries that stepped into the crisis in a stronger position uh, weathered it uh, better. The same way people with stronger immune system are more likely to survive uh, a hit by the uh, virus. Second, that we have to expand the concept of resilience. After the global financial crisis, we concentrated on one thing, the banking system. And good we did it because we are not faced with a uh, uh, financial crisis as a result. But that is simply not enough. We have to invest in resilience of people that are healthy, educated, skilled, and protected against uh, shocks. We have to recognize that we are likely to be hit by uh, climate, by the climate crisis. So we have to invest in the resilience of our planet to reduce the risk coming from there. And we need to to continue to expand the uh, resilience of the economy by building clear indicators for pandemic of the future and integrate the lessons we have learned from this one so we are fast to see it, fast to act uh, and act together. If I may, there is one more it, uh, point that, that is important to register. When we got into the uh, pandemic, it wasn't like we were a perfect world. Um, in um, October uh, 2019, as an incoming managing director, I spoke about a world with low productivity, anemic growth, growing inequality, a looming climate crisis. None of these problems have gone away. So if we want to be stronger in the face of the next shock, be it pandemic or something else, we have to recognize that we have to invest in productivity enhancement. We have to be much more determined to work together to build a world that is uh, a more resilient home for all of us. You made that point strongly in your recent speeches and your phrase, the great divergence between the uh, higher income, uh, now faster growth company countries and, and the lower income ones is, is, is a takeaway for me from, from our conversation. I want to ask you about an interesting uh, development in the last few months. Both you as the Managing Director of the IMF, leader in the global financial system, and Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, are, are now calling for some sort of uh, global agreement on, on tax rates. Um, Janet Yellen uh, called for such an agreement uh, uh, recently. You've uh, said the same, uh, proposing an OECD uh, plan that would involve 139 companies countries around the world. Tell us a little bit about this global tax equalization, what the benefits would be, uh, what the difficulties would be in implementing it, because taxation is, as you know, a tricky, tricky thing to make work. 
But uh, t tell us about that idea. The, the IMF has been advocating for a long time for a minimal corporate tax. Why? Because when we have it, there is no race to the bottom and uh, less tax, avo tax avoidance, meaning there would be more money in the public purse to invest in education and healthcare and infrastructure, uh, digitalization, all the good things uh, we recognize we have to invest more in, uh, into. Uh, what are the difficulties? Uh, countries that have been competing with low uh, tax rates uh, have to be brought a bit up and uh, the negotiations will be around where is this sweet spot where it would be great for the world economy and it would be great for the national uh, tax authorities uh, and at the same time it is acceptable. Uh, you, you probably have heard uh, there was uh, the uh, proposal to be to go for a 21% uh, tax rate. Uh, there may be a number that is uh, deviating somewhat downwards from this, but hey, anything that is above what today in many places is uh, uh, 10 or even lower is, is a benefit. Uh, the uh, second issue that I want to flag is that uh, we have to at the same time support emerging markets developing countries to strengthen their tax administration because having any tax rate with no collection doesn't solve the public purse uh, problem. Uh, so we are uh, very strongly stepping into this with the commitment to help the implementation uh, in a, especially in countries where there is still a way to go uh, in improving uh, tax administration. So uh, uh, let me ask you, Kristalina, uh, about another uh, challenge ahead that uh, you're concerned about, uh, and that is the effects of global climate change on the, the global economy. You've spoken uh, about the changes you see coming and the impact on financial markets. Summarize for our, our viewers uh, what your concerns are. Very clearly, climate change uh, is a uh, uh, danger to macroeconomic stability and to financial stability. Why? For both physical reasons and transition reasons. Physical, because of the shocks climate events that are becoming more severe and more frequent caused to communities and countries, rapidly rising price tag of these events. But also because we now have science on our side telling us we can cope with this problem if we dramatically change the structure and functioning of our economies from high carbon intensity to low carbon intensity. And by doing so, we actually are generating new opportunities for investments and for jobs on a very massive scale. We calculated that an investment in a green infrastructure push, in other words, uh, 
uh, electric mobility, uh, bringing more renewable energy in the mix, more energy efficiency. This can boost growth on an annual basis by 0.7% globally. Over the next 15 years, this translates into a massive source of improving the well-being of economies and people. And that would generate net millions of new jobs. Uh, we also recognize that for this transition to succeed, it has to be fair. In other words, those communities and sectors of the economy that are negatively impacted by the shift to low carbon, they have to be looked after, they have to be supported, they have to be helped. Unless it is done in that fair, inclusive manner, we would see divisions in society and a pushback. Uh, but I am confident that by now we know enough how to do it for the benefits of people and the economy, and most importantly, for our own existence, the well-being of our children and grandchildren. Let me ask you a, a final question that touches on all the issues that we've discussed, really. How would you rate the new Biden administration in the United States on these problems of dealing with the pandemic, uh, of dealing with the global economic slowdown that was caused by the pandemic, and by reconnecting the U.S. to uh, international efforts to deal with climate change? How do you think Biden's doing? Uh, we see very positive impact in the United States uh, and uh, globally. Uh, first, uh, leadership on stepping up policy action in this crisis. So very important to bring fiscal support and monetary accommodation to sustain the economy while it is put on standstill and to support the recovery, the exit from the uh, crisis. Uh, second, very aggressive pursuit of uh, vaccinations uh, so people and businesses can function in a way that is uh, uh, good for everyone. And third, uh, addressing some of the long-standing uh, global economic uh, obstacles for growth. Um, we talked about the uh, minimal corporate tax, but let me add a very important other tax issue, which is taxing the digital industry. And doing so in a fair distribution between where this uh, uh, income is generated, in other words, where services are provided, and where the companies uh, are located, uh, doing a lot uh, in investing in research and development. So moving digital taxation on a global level, rather than country by country by country by country, is so much more efficient. And it is going to be such a positive impulse for growth and also for addressing uh, inequalities uh, that uh, uh, I can only be happy to be witnessing uh, this development uh, and uh, from the uh, position of the IMF contributing uh, as much as we can to it. 
So, Kristalina Georgieva, uh, the managing director of the IMF, the person who, in a sense, uh, oversees all the world's economic activity and tries to deal with problems. Thank you so much for joining us again for a, a tour of the horizon in, in global finance. Come back and join us uh, uh, another time in the future. Thank you. So we'll be back with lots of great programming on, on Washington Post Live. I hope you'll stay with us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.